stand for the reading of God's word. Luke 12, 49 through 59. This is Jesus speaking. I have come to bring fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo and what constraint I am under until it is completed. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, Mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He said to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say it's going to rain, and it does. And when the south wind blows, you say it's going to be hot. And it is. Hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? Why don't you judge for yourself what is right? As you are going with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard to be reconciled on the way. Or your adversary may drag you off to the judge, and the judge turn you over to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. (laughs) You're thinking... This is going to be a good time. (laughs) Well, let's see what the Spirit has to say to you this morning. How about that? Jesus can be an enigma. That's one of the things that leads me to study him and to really like to teach. I love, I would make a perpetual student. I love to be in the scriptures. Um, In addition to knowing him, of course, which is by far the most important thing. Um, But I want to make a little advertisement here. I've been talking to some people about this. I'm going to quote like 29 scriptures. I'm not going to give you the reference points. I'll post the notes on the website. Um, But in doing that, in trying to unpack, thank you, Ryan, unpack this passage, it took referring to the entire book. Right? Fortunately... I have read the entire book, right? Some of you have not. And before I say anything else today, if you are not reading the Bible every day, what's wrong with you? (laughs) Some of you read the Wall Street Journal every day. This would take less time. So, there. Uh, As I said, so I had to refer to the whole Bible, and you'll see that in a minute. Um, and I just want to also give you this encouragement that if I happen to say something that you find controversial, uh, I would be honored, deeply honored, and filled with gratitude if you come up and talk to me about it. Uh, Don't just email Dave. Um, Come and talk to me. (laughs) So we can engage in a dialogue, and we will both grow in the process, I promise. 
Um, speaking of David, he's done a wonderful job getting us to this point in Luke, um, these stories of Jesus on the road to Jerusalem where uh, all sorts of, sorts of murder and mayhem awaits him. Um, and it's understanding that helps this passage a little bit. And the reason I say that, Jesus has been going through telling stories um, telling parables, healing people, riling people up, which he seems to do pretty well. Um, but all of it, if you kind of take it point by point by point, he's giving you the demands of discipleship, basically. Oh, hi. Um, <laughs> I have some friends here, so thank you for coming. Um, these are the things that he's suggested in the uh, cost of discipleship. Um, he, he wails on hypocrites and condemns them. Uh, hypocrisy is one of Jesus' least favorite things ever, right? He said, um, if you walk it, if you're going to talk it, walk it. If you don't, get off the bus. Sorry, I just made that up. But he also condemns, he condemns lawyers, okay? Uh, that's always a joy. Um, he warns against greed, about being possessed by our possessions, exhorts us to trust in God's gracious and generous provision, and uses some really gripping stories, like he's going to be hacked to bits and his house burned down kind of stuff, um, about the importance of servants being watchful, don't fall asleep at the wheel. And with this passage, he's going to take it a little bit further, but the theme is not going to feel entirely new. All right, so just quickly, I want to indulge myself, because you know I love to talk about emotional Jesus. Um, Why is this so important to me? In my experience... To know a person and bond with a person, it's necessary to get a look under the hood. Um, I'm very fond of saying, vulnerability is the pathway to transcendence. If Jesus remains forever academic to you, what good is that? It's necessary to know him, so when he reveals his emotions to me, I treasure it. It's a glimpse into his very soul, right? So I'm going to just read one quickly. This is in, John, um, this is in Luke 7, where uh, the people came from John the Baptist and said, are you really the Messiah? And he says, you go back to John and you tell him that miracles are being done and this and this and this. And then they leave. And then Jesus has this, this, this welling of emotion that leads him to this. And I just want to read it for you with emphasis. Um, He says to the people, what did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man in expensive clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, and I tell you, more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. And I added the emphasis because I think it's there. And what he was saying, Jesus is reacting to the doubt that his cousin, his friend, his forerunner is feeling in prison. And after everybody leaves, he just has this moment, right? So Jesus is given to having these moments. In our passage, we don't have to figure out what he's feeling because he actually tells us, okay? Um, he's a little exasperated in 49 and 50. I suppose it could be attributed, as I explained, he's been on this journey to Jerusalem, talking to massive crowds of people. I love it. It says earlier that he was talking to a crowd of many thousands, in fact, so many, that they were trampling on each other. We'll come back to that in a second. Um, but I'll tell you what, delivering truth to large groups of people 
who then proceed to do nothing with it, is exhausting. So I see him throwing his hands up in a combination of frustration and anxiety. Verse 49, I've come to bring fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is complete. Wow. Here we have Jesus giving us a peek behind the curtain at his emotions. Distressed is a pretty strong word, okay? It comes from a Greek term that means pressed or squeezed, like in a wine press, okay? Um, What I hear him saying is pretty much, I am caught in a vice of dread until I complete my mission. Tax, I'm having a little issue here. Okay, that should do it. Um, Just want to remind you that our Lord was a human being, experiencing the full range of human experience, including emotions. That's why he can relate to us in his role as intercessor with the Father, tells us in Hebrews. Okay, so having established with you, I hope you're with me, that if this is an emotional outburst, what is he upset about? Uh, To understand that, we have to grapple with what he means by, I have come to bring fire on the earth. Okay, uh, fire, incidentally, if you do, you know, just quick word search in the Bible, it occurs like a million billion times. Um, <clears throat> in the Old Testament, all through Leviticus, there are offerings made by fire. Um, it occurs hundreds of times in there. Um, and in, also occurs in the prophetic literature, both minor and major prophets. It's always fire. Fire's coming. Fire's coming. And it almost always means judgment. Almost always. Uh, In the apocalyptic sections of Matthew and Mark, and yes, there are apocalyptic sections of Matthew and Mark, particularly Mark. Mark likes fire a lot. Um, It always refers to judgment there, too. Almost always refers to judgment. And if that's not enough evidence about fire meaning judgment, uh, take a breeze through Revelation, uh, and there you will find fire sprinkled all the way through, and it typically means either destruction or glory. Because you might remember that the glorified Christ is flaming from the waist down, right? And his eyes look like fire. So is Jesus talking about final judgment? Could be. Remember what I said about Jesus being the last Old Testament prophet? Actually, I realized I didn't say that. Jesus is the last Old Testament prophet because he talks in things that have layers of meaning and sometimes can be a bit impenetrable. But it's very typical for prophetic passages to be talking about one thing, a temporal event that might take place in, oh, I don't know, the next few centuries, but they also might be referring to some cataclysmic event that's going to happen in the very distant future. And it's up to us to kind of understand which of those things it is. And if you want to test me on this, my favorite example of when you read it in the Old Testament and it gets interpreted in the New Testament, you go, whoa, whoa, what, is, um, and the virgin shall be with child? All right? If you look at the context where that occurs in Isaiah, it has nothing whatsoever to do with a coming suffering servant, generally speaking. But everybody takes it that way because of the years of you know, the, the tradition of interpret. And the New Testament tells us that that was a prophecy. But the reading, it reads two ways. Okay, so was Jesus talking about judgment? Could he be? There's another possibility that I think is entirely plausible. God himself is described in the Bible as fire. 
Be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he made with you. Do not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. So God has emotions in the Old Testament too, in case you were wondering. Um, But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? He will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them, but for you who revere my name. The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. That, ladies and gentlemen, is practically the last statement of the Old Testament. I love that one, right? Why do I love that? Because I will tell you, I consider myself to be a person who reveres the name of the Lord Almighty. There's an argument for ending up on the right side of history. But back to that in a minute. Okay. Back in Luke 3.16, you all know John 3.16. This is Luke 3.16. Uh, John the Baptist, again, is talking about Jesus, and he says, I will baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Thank you. Okay. Um, now, Remember in Acts 2, at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit shows up, he's given to the apostles, and what does he look like? Whoops. Tongues of fire. Best slide I could find. Sorry. Um, it seems reasonable to me that assess, to assess that while Jesus might be talking about apocalyptic judgment, it doesn't follow that he would wish it were already kindled. Not prior to him completing his mission, right? I don't want, certainly don't want judgment to occur before I have been judged for the sins of the world. That would mess up the program. So for that reason, I'm going to go with, he could very well be referring to the coming Holy Spirit, which when it, uh, when it arrived, could be argued, spread like wildfire and turned the world upside down. Now, that would make sense if Jesus were wishing that that fire would be kindled, right? And get, get it going, set it, touch it off. Now, incidentally, the work of the Holy Spirit in the early church is phenomenal, the way it grew and flourished. Um, but the, the work of the Spirit is not simply to grow the church. It's also to grow us. And the image that best describes it is in Micah. It's a refiner's fire. The blaze that destroys all that is temporary and refines all that is permanent. Durable, sorry. Durable is the word I went there. Again, the blaze that destroys all that is temporary and refines the durable. But look at verse 50. I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed... Lisa's version said constrained. I thought that was interesting. How distressed um, I am until it is completed. 
So we know that Jesus was baptized already. Remember that? His greatest day ever. Comes up out of the water. The skies part. He hears his father's voice saying, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Oh, greatest day ever by far. But, so he's already been in water baptism. So he's talking about his pending execution. Okay? He's having a pre-Gethsemane moment. When you read through the Gospels, you'll find that as Jesus gets closer and closer to the day of his crucifixion, he talks about it more and more in more specific detail. And he's slightly more upset every time he talks about it. Uh, in, um, sorry. I just lost my place. There we are. Okay. Um, sorry. This is a really important point, too. I hate it when that happens. So... Um, he, he, you can see him talking about the cross more and more as he gets closer to it. I don't know when exactly he became conscious of that being part of his mission. But can you imagine knowing that was coming your entire life? How would it be possible to focus on anything else? He just wants to cross the finish line. Now remember that the Holy Spirit doesn't come in force until after Jesus ascends into heaven. He knew that sequence of events. So these two things is, uh, want to bring fire? I wish it were already kindled, but I have a baptism to go through. There's a tension between them. Uh, there's a tension is between his desire to set the world on fire spiritually and the pressure of enduring the event he knew it would take to accomplish it, which would, in fact, kill him. Right? It's a path through one to the other. Let me go back for a second to talk about the Holy Spirit. Um, consider that our trials are referred to as fiery by Peter in that verse. The Greek word that's translated variously in your translations, I prefer New King James, it says fiery trials. The word actually means smelting. Right? Uh, and so I prefer that. Do not be surprised at the smelting you are suffering. Remember, the refiner's fire destroys all that is temporary and refines that which is durable. So they pivot slightly in 51. We're going to go off into a new topic, and this is probably the heart of this passage, and this is where it really gets fun. <clears throat> Jesus kind of sets us up, right? He says, do you think I came to bring peace on earth? Well, you're, yeah, kind of. Do I think you came to bring peace on earth? Aren't you the prince of peace? After all, didn't the angels say that peace on earth, goodwill to men on whom his favor rests when they announced your birth? Didn't he, didn't he say, my peace I live with you, I leave with you, my peace I give you. Isn't he contradicting himself? All right, for those of you who have friends who refuse to read the Bible because it's laden with, it's laden with contradictions, yeah, there's one right there, all right? So you bring that up to those people and say, yeah, you know what my favorite contradiction in scriptures is? Jesus says this, and then he says this. Which is it? Right? And hopefully, after today, you'll be able to carry on that conversation with that person. Okay. <clears throat> I said before, he was talking to a crowd of thousands um, who were actually trampling on each other, kind of Jesus in the mosh pit. There were some of his disciples in the crowd... Um, but probably many, many more people who didn't believe or follow him yet and probably never would, okay? 
But what he's doing is talking about the demands of discipleship. I said that earlier. And here he's laying down an expectation, and it's this. If you get very serious about devoting your life to him, there will be costs. And then he illustrates by going after the fundamental cultural organizing unit, the family. He goes into great, ta- great detail with very specific relationships in that verse that will be impacted. And it emphasizes the point that nobody gets out unscathed. Isn't that a little harsh? What is he talking about? Let me give you a few examples. I wear this bracelet. It kind of looks like barbed wire. Uh, It's not just a fashion accessory, although it is that. Um, It reminds me to pray every day for the persecuted church internationally. Okay? Do you know what one of the most common forms of global persecution is? When a member of a Muslim or Hindu family accepts Jesus and surrenders her life to him... It is not at all unusual for her to be expelled, regardless of age, from the household, beaten, or worse. That is an example of Jesus causing division in a family. By the way, if you'd like to have one of these, I have some more. Um, If you commit to praying every day for the persecuted church internationally, it's yours. But only if. I have a personal example. When I gave my life to Jesus nearly 40 years ago, I was living at home with my single mom, who professed to be a Christian, went to a Baptist church, um, but had a man sleeping with her to whom she was not married, one in a series, I I can't recall the name of this particular one. On reflection, kind of like the woman at the well. She's had several, and the current one is not your husband. Um, I had just awakened to following Jesus and got involved in this, this funky little culty church. Um, and the leaders there uh, believed that <clears throat> it was biblically proper for me, um, based on don't associate with people who are so-called believers who are acting sinfully, um, to confront my mother about her obvious sin. At the time, I was persuaded it was the right thing to do. And in my zeal, I did confront her with the threat that she repent or I was moving out in process, in protest. And mom said to me, there's the door. So that's how I ended up leaving home at 19 and never going back. You can judge whether I made the right decision or not, but it was clearly Jesus, more specifically, early honeymoon, sold out devotion to Jesus that separated my family. By the way, we ultimately reconciled, so there's a sort of a nice ending to that. Um, uh, but she never acknowledged any wrongdoing. So, <clears throat> and finally, another one I just heard. There's a family that I know. It's a blended family. The, the husband and wife are devoted followers of Jesus without any question. And they have a teenage son from the wife's previous marriage who gets to spend time with his birth dad. Birth dad was a one-time believer who walked away from the faith and now professes atheism. Birth dad has begun to reason with Junior 
that his faith probably isn't real and that eventually he too will become an atheist and it's beginning to have, cause Junior to have real doubts. Mom and stepdad are incensed about this situation and stepdad in particular wants to defend his adopted son by doing ungracious things to birth dad. That's Jesus bringing more division into this family than it already had. And by the way, pray for that family, if you will. Uh, So the summary of this inflammatory statement about division, and everybody in the house is going to be fighting, um, is that Jesus says, if you devote yourself to following him, you will experience division in your family. I'm pretty sure all of you can think of an example where the cross has divided your family. The cross is, in fact, the great dividing point of all history. John MacArthur said, all men are divided, and women are divided at the cross both in eternity and in time. Jesus said to expect family division, and it can be another example of smelting. Remember that Jesus also said later in Luke 14, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. No, I know, I know, he's talking comparatively, you know, hate in comparison to, you know, that word comparison is not in what Jesus says. We kind of deduce that because it makes, it takes the sting out of it a little bit. It's still a pretty intense evaluation Jesus demands our devotion to him to be above our devotion to any other living thing, no matter how cherished. Parent worship or child worship is sin. And we are called to devotion to Jesus Christ. It's a high bar for commitment. Jesus pivots again in verse 54. He said to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, it's going to rain, and it does. And when the south wind blows, you say, it's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? Uh, It's such an interesting observation he makes. Um, This is what I call, this is an early first century example of what I now call the academic problem. It's this, Jesus is kind of saying to people, uh, so you can, you can look at the weather, weather patterns and form an opinion because you learn from it about what's going to happen next. And he says, good for you. You've taken the time to understand recognizable elements of the creation and totally missed the creator. But the present time, He's referring to his presence there on earth in his physical body and his earthly ministry characterized by all kinds of wonderful things, miracles, sign after sign after sign fulfilled that was prophesied about in the Old Testament. Many, many in his crowd. The Pharisees, the lawyers, for sure should have what? Should have known the scriptures and recognized him. But they relied on their own reason and perception of things, and they missed their Messiah. 
problem to get so steeped in science or natural phenomena and remain completely asleep spiritually. Now, as you go on to the last chunk of this, and believe me, I'm going to try to tie them together. I have, uh, in my current daily Bible reading, I'm reading the Bible through in The Message by Eugene Peterson. It's wonderful. It's awesome. You start reading Genesis, and it's like hard to put it down because it's just the narrative is is really kicking. Um, But he translates the next chunk from 57 to 59 as, you don't have to be a genius to understand these things. Just use your common sense. The kind you use if, while being taken to court, you decided to settle with your accuser on the way, knowing that if the case went to the judge, you'd probably go to jail and pay every last penny of the fine. That's the decision I'm asking you to make. Okay? I said, whoa, what is he talking about? This paragraph reminds me a lot of the parable of the shrewd steward. Remember that David preached on a few weeks ago? It's like, what, 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 what? There's a guy who's a household manager, and uh, in order to not lose his job. Um, he brings in people who are creditors, and he gets them to lie about their bill. So he basically gains friends by using money by extorting his boss, and he is commended for that behavior, right? We have trouble wrapping our heads around that because somebody's being commended for being shrewd, which typically has a pejorative connotation, I think, to us today. Um, but nevertheless, in this chunk, I like the Peterson translation, because number one, it ties the paragraph back to the one before, where they're talking about common sense, that reading of the sky and the wind. It does that, number one, but also it's much more dynamic, in my opinion, than NIV of proving the point, making the point. The verse, is it just about practical behavior, how to manage your legal affairs and settle a case before it gets in front of the judge to improve your general day-to-day life? Could be. I think it's far more likely that it is a metaphor. And the metaphor is this. You know what? Do not surrender yourself to Jesus Christ. It's just stupid. You guys who are in business understand that if you're on the way to a trial and you settle, it's going to be much, much, much easier than you stand in front of that judge and he finds you wrong. Jesus said, Jesus says, it just makes sense sense. I think that's amazing that he says that, right? The real life example shows a way to be shrewd in earthly dealings to avoid rotting in jail. The spiritual meaning is that it makes sense to settle up with God before you end up facing him in judgment, and you will, each and every one of you will. And so will I. Of course, this seems like the most obvious argument in the world, it's really, it is the judgment argument, right? Devote yourself to Jesus, to avoid judgment. We don't talk about that one much anymore, but that's exactly what he's saying. For it to be the most obvious argument in the world, of course, you actually have to believe in the ultimate judge and real consequences in order for it to be compelling. Having fun yet? Sorry, I need to break that one. That silence there. Okay. So that was a lot. To give you a takeaway, because David Gunlock has trained me well, I'm going to give you a takeaway. I want to focus on baptism in the Holy Spirit. In Mark 1038, 
You know the story. James and John, sons of Zebedee. I love this. They come to Jesus. I actually don't love this. I don't love this. This is not a good story. Um, they come to Jesus, and they say, we have a request. By the way, their mom put them up to it, so they can blame mom. Um, they said, we request that we are granted to sit at your right hand and your left hand when you enter your kingdom. And Jesus, who likes to answer questions with questions, says to them, hmm, are you able to drink the cup that I must drink and be baptized with the baptism I must be baptized with? Kind of elliptical, right, that he's saying to them. And they say, yeah, we are. He says, awesome. He says, because that's what's going to happen to you. You're going to be baptized with the same baptism as me. And oh, by the way, those places are not mine to give. It's a really intense passage. Baptized with the baptism I must be baptized with. Baptism is not a mystery to any of you. We do it multiple times a year in a nice hot tub out in the patio. Right? But the picture is significant. The picture is complete immersion and then emergence. And that's what the word in Greek means. There's no hedging in baptism. You are wet all over. It's all or it's nothing. Jesus uses baptism in both these passages as a metaphor for his death on the cross. But the question he asked James and John is applicable to us as well. He's been explaining the demands of discipleship, including the expectation of a divided family and still asking for a commitment, in fact, pointing out the stupidity of not deciding for him from a purely worldly point of view. Are you willing to be baptized with that baptism? Are you all in? John the Baptist said Jesus would baptize us with Holy Spirit and fire. The Holy Spirit is a person, and brothers and sisters, fire is the process. The Holy Spirit will be a refining force within us, putting us through smelting, whoops, in order to produce perseverance that leads to maturity. It's an expectation. One last reference to fire before I wrap up. In 2 Timothy, Paul reminds Timothy to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you by the laying on of my hands. What does that mean? It suggests that we have a part somehow, a partnering, a fellowship, a koinonia, with the Holy Spirit in allowing, enhancing, enabling, choose whatever verb you want, the gift that we have that we might be more devoted to Jesus and more effective for him in the world. Is the Holy Spirit ablaze in you today? Are you sharing in the fellowship of the sufferings of Jesus? He says that, that occurs a lot, right? What is the point of that? The point is, when you are going through whatever it is that you're going through, some of you are in family divisions, you're in some of the ones I mentioned, right? It's painful, it's hurtful, okay? Sharing in the fellowship of the sufferings of Jesus is he experienced the similar thing at some point in his life that makes him sympathetic, The idea is to feel 
the pain and relate to the Savior. We can never approach the suffering that he did on the cross. When he was judged, he became sin for us on the cross. And he invites us to share in the fellowship of his sufferings because they refine us. The choice to follow Jesus is logical. The price is severe. And the rewards are unimaginable. The Bible teaches us that at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And this is the road we travel to get there. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, if we know you, we know that you are active in our lives and you, through your power, Jesus is dwelling in us. Thank you for refining us. Thank you that the process never ends. We know that uh, you don't have any intention to hurt us without having a purpose. And it's to burn away the dross and refine the gold. For all who are suffering this morning, Father, I just pray that you would give them an understanding that in that pain, in that place, they are sharing in the fellowships of the suffering of Jesus and becoming more like him in the process. Set your spirit alive, ablaze in us. Fan the flame of the gift you've already given us and let us go out and shine brilliantly for you by your power and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We chose a song. Oh, by the way, I wanted to introduce these guys. Um, it's kind of like the Go-Go's with a front man. Um, 